Psalm 125. <coughs> begins, I guess it's kind of more like getting towards the tail end of the section that we spoke about briefly last week in the book of songs, the songs of ascent. This, of course, is another one of these uh, psalms that would have been collectively sung, a, a corporate um, psalm that would have been sung in the yearly pilgrimage uh, as the people of Israel uh, went up to uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there was, there was three feasts that they were to observe, and so there was uh, these various times throughout the year that they would make their way to Jerusalem to observe these feasts, and along the way they would participate in singing these psalms uh, together. They would collectively uh, sing these out loud, which is kind of an amazing thought as you think about this, to hear a large group of people all making their way, you know, kind of hearing this, this uh, the words of this ring out as people are walking, as they're making their way to Jerusalem. And this particular psalm is a psalm of confidence, confidence. It's meant uh, for the pilgrims to Jerusalem. It's meant for them to express their confidence, their trust in God. And, and so this comes, of course, uh, you know, after we looked at uh, Psalm 123 last week. Uh, it it kind of comes after this idea of the Lord uh, seeing his people who need to receive mercy, who are being mocked and under, uh, you know, experiencing anxiety and worries and fear and oppression at the hands of those who oppose them. Uh, and, and we see a little bit of, of the rescue in uh, Psalm 124. And now as we make our way to Psalm 125, we see the expression of trust that is uh, confessed by this group of people. And so we come to this opening line in verse 1, where they simply state, the psalmist here simply states uh, this uh, confession making a statement about what it is to belong to God. He starts this way. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. It opens with those simple words, those who trust in the Lord. Now, we are reading here the insight, the description of the psalmist's perspective based on who they are as God's people in relation to their experience of God's faithfulness to his people throughout his history. <coughs> but this is said of God's people by God's people. I think that we can all agree that the surrounding nations were probably saying those who trust in the God of Israel, you know, are under these stark, uh, you know, these really difficult 
restrictions. They're not allowed to eat specific things, and they can't do specific things, and they, can't, they have to live a very specific way. And this expression of trust in the Lord is viewed and seen by others to be uh, insufficient. It's seen to p- potentially be not fun, to, to, to be lacking. And I, and I think as we think about our day and age, and you think about what people uh, think about what it is to be a Christian, to, to look across and see those who are Christians, those who trust in the Lord, what are they putting their faith in? What are they, how are they operating? What are they living like? And it's easy to try to meet the expectations of the surrounding community as Christians. Oh, you know, people, they really want Christians to be, uh, to, to live this way or accept this specific thing or to contribute in this manner or to participate in these activities that are, uh, you know, really opposing God. But yet, as Christians, we are not defined by the cultural expectations of us society's expectations of us, but rather we are defined by our trust in God. Trust in God. This could be said uh, is essentially faith. Faith is not this expression of trust with a lack of evidence, but precisely an expression of trust with evidence. The strength of your trust, the strength of your faith, is directly connected to that which you are putting your faith in. You know, we, we all walked into this building today. We all expressed trust, faith, that this building was going to be here. That the timbers that make up the frame of this building, which, like, if you look on the plaque back there, it's, like, from, like, 1901 or something, which have been here for, like, 100 100 years plus, will continue to be faithful today. We don't walk into the building this morning thinking, I'm not really sure about this building, but I'm going to go inside No, we've seen it standing again and again and again, and the neighborhood has viewed this building in this neighborhood standing here for a century. It has viewed this building, and you've viewed this building, you've been inside the building, and you've experienced it, and it is on that basis, on that trust that you enter in. You have a consistency, or there's there's a consistent faithfulness that this object has put before you. It's not that you really believed extra strong today that it was going to stay up, and so it stayed up. What you believe, how you believe it, is, is not as important as the object in which you are placing your faith and placing your trust. And for Christians, we place our trust in the Lord the object of our faith, God, Jesus, his son. It's through Christ that we've seen faithfulness. And we can trust him, we can believe him, we can, we can hear what he has said to be true 
for us and true about us because he has been faithful again and again and again, and he has never failed. And so we have a strong, a strong person in which we can place our faith, a strong God who has always been faithful. And here, this is what the psalmist is getting at as he's making his way up to Jerusalem with all the other pilgrims, and they are singing this. Those who trust in the Lord, they're expressing their security, their confidence in God. The nation as a whole, individually, the entirety of this group, they express their trust in God and therefore their loyalty to God. Because if he has been faithful, he has been true, then as God's people, we always want to be with him because he's never failed us. You know, that's really what makes us want to to make changes in our lives. When somebody fails us or something fails us, if something was expected to perform a certain function or to do a certain thing and then it doesn't do it, that's when we're like, okay, well, I got to get, get out of this situation or I got to fix that or I got to do, I gotta do, do this now or I got to buy a new one of those because that obviously is not going to work again. When things fail us, that's when we move on. But Jesus has never failed us, nor will he ever fail us, and so there is no need to move on. We can be faithful to him as he has been faithful to us. We express our loyalty in pursuing him continually because he will continue to be faithful. More than that, we belong to him. He's purchased us with his own blood. And so the psalmist writes, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now, this promise to abide forever, to be like Mount Zion, trusting in the Lord, it only comes to pass when we place that trust exclusively in the Lord. You know, you can't be trusting in other things and also trying to trust in God. It doesn't work. You've got to clear out all of the the other junk You've got to renounce all of those other things so that he might take uh, priority, that he might be preeminent in your life. This is the call that is on our lives as Christians. The psalmist writes, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now here is a particular phrase, a, a, a historical reference a theological reference that would ring true for the people of God in this time. Mount Zion is, is, uh, can often refer to either the entire city of Jerusalem, it can refer uh, to, the, to the temple mount on which uh, there's kind of valleys surrounding, and then uh, we find this pinnacle uh, on which the temple mount sits where uh, the temple then is, and uh, is the dwelling place of God. But we also find that uh, within that temple mount, there is an even higher uh, kind of structure that is there. It's almost like this, this uh, corner fortress, like tower, 
that is, is kind of on the corner there that would be able to see everything, to be secure, and from which you could view the surrounding valley. And so this is a very specific idea, a thought, that as these pilgrims made their way into, uh, into Jerusalem, as they make their ways down the surrounding mountains into the valley, and then they are coming up again, they have this, uh, this idea of Mount Zion being in view, in sight. There is the stronghold. There is the place of security. There is the place of safety. This idea of Mount Zion signifies stability and strength something that cannot be moved. And the psalmist here writes, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, built upon a firm foundation. Isn't this uh, similar to the words of Jesus himself when he gave this parable about building upon the solid rock? He explained there that there were two men that built houses. One built his house upon a sandy foundation, and one built upon a rocky foundation, solid rock. And there it was when the wind and rains came, the floods came, that the sandy foundation slipped and the structure then collapsed. But the man who built his house upon the firm foundation, upon the solid rock, his house remained because he built upon something strong. This is what the psalmist is wanting to communicate. As he's making his way down the valley and into the valley and then up onto the Temple Mount, he sees Mount Zion. He sees the spot where the dwelling place of God is, in the temple, and can think, when I place my trust there, when I make my way here for this, in this pilgrimage, I am expressing my loyalty, that I belong to God. Mount Zion cannot be moved, abides forever. This is connected with the security that the believer has. The idea that Mount Zion will not be moved, that is secure forever, remarks upon what it means to belong to God. That you are His, that you are safe, that you are secure. You are positionally adopted, accepted. You're as safe as you can be when you trust in Christ for salvation. Now he pulls in another uh, visible metaphor. Verse 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. 
And so as they're making their way, the psalmist, along with all the people, they begin to see the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. As they're making their way in, they're coming into the the valley. Not only do they see the Temple Mount, but then they also see the protective uh, mountain ranges that surround the the entire city. This would make it so that the, the surrounding armies couldn't pull in like huge, like, uh, huge like war machines and, and, you know, catapults and all that stuff and, and wheel things in because of the, uh, the elevations of the various terrains. You're not on a flat plain, and so it would make things difficult to attack. Uh, these surrounding mountains were uh, positionally a good defense for the city. The city being surrounded by mountains, guarded on every side, every approach to the city. And so now, the psalmist says this, this is what it means to trust in the Lord. You are unshakable, unmovable, but more than that, you are connected with being guarded by God on all sides. The first part was about where we place our trust what we do, but the second part here in verse 2 is about what God does for us. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. God protects here this city. God protects Jerusalem. Historically, Jerusalem has has always uh, kind of been protected because it's the location of the temple. It's the dwelling place of God, and so this uh, This one specific region, Mount Zion, has always been protected as the dwelling place of God. But because Christ has come, because he has paid a perfect uh, price for our sin, because he lived a perfect life, because his blood was shed for us, because we have been given his Holy Spirit, who is God, as believers, we are the dwelling place of God. As we have been given the fullness of his Holy Spirit. And so it is that as God has protected Jerusalem, so then God protects his people. He surrounds his people as the mountains surround Jerusalem. This, of course, is the promise of Christ that we would be this dwelling place of God, that he goes to the Father so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. But additionally, he tells us in that very last words in Matthew 28, that he is with us. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus surrounds us, is with us, never leaves us. And so he responds to us when we trust in him for salvation. He responds to us by drawing near to us, by standing with us. Now we see, we see a little bit of the reason here in verse 3. For the scepter 
of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. As the pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, they would be passing through lands. And if you recall, this land is the promised land. This land was a land that was promised to God's people as they made their way out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, as they confessed that they needed to be rescued, that they needed to be saved, as they came to a place where they were going from a people who were enslaved to Pharaoh, then to being then uh, slaves to God, that they might worship him, that they might come into relationship with him, entering a covenant in which God said, if you obey my laws, I will bless you. If you do not obey my laws, then you will receive discipline and you will receive these curses upon you in order to correct you and bring you back into right standing with me. And as a result of this, they were promised this land, and, and, you know, we find in the early books of the Bible the story of them making their way through uh, various lands to get to this particular spot, and this land is promised to them. And, of course, in the book of Numbers, we have the division of lands of who gets what and how many people and uh, the different tribes that were given specific uh, allotments of land. And here... The psalmist says, as he's making his way through, as the people are making their way through, they're looking around at the lands on the way to Jerusalem and seeing what has been done with these lands. The scepter of the wicked, of of wickedness, shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. So there's a land that belongs to the righteous, that is those who do good, who are in right standing with God, and then there's this scepter of wickedness. Of course, this refers to those who are not loyal to God, that are not obeying his commands. Now, this is either those from outside of Israel, foreign powers, uh, foreign forces, or this could come from within. Those who were members of uh, the community, who knew that they ought to obey God's commands, but yet did not. And here's what he says, that this scepter of wickedness, this, uh, these people who might be overseeing these lands, what they tend to do is contaminate those regions. They tend to contaminate those things in which they come into contact with. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The idea here is that there is this contaminated scepter that is placed down and is is almost, uh, you know, laying out across these great swaths of land. And in the contact that this is making, it is then uh, infecting those who it surrounds. This is why he says, this cannot happen because the righteous will be tempted to stretch out their hands to do wrong. What God wants to do 
is to defend Israel, to defend Israel in order to prevent them from falling away. He says, we've got to get rid of the scepter of wickedness. We've got to get rid of that. The foreign powers, the things that are infecting, infecting this, uh, this group of those who are called righteous, it has to be taken care of. The sinfulness has to be removed. But more than that, look at what God is also doing. He's not only attacking those who are outsiders who would come against the righteous, but he's also dealing with our tendency to sin when we are nearer people who are unrighteous. He's treating our problem as well, the heart problem. That if you are keeping company with those who are leading you into unrighteousness, then you're going to likely have a lapse in judgment. You're going to make foolish decisions, sinful decisions. And so God not only deals with the outer, the surface issue that it's attacking, but he deals with our heart problem as well. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. He's protecting us from participating in sinful activities. And so as they made their way to Jerusalem, they would look around, they would reflect on the covenant promises that the land belonged to them. They would determine uh, that they would trust in God again as walking through the land is really a reflection of his faithfulness. There's the land that's allotted to this tribe. There's the land that's allotted to this tribe. There's the land. And as you made your way through the land, it would be this, you know, kind of historical refresher. Here's how God was faithful. And so you would move through and you would be making these promises in your heart, fresh and new. I trust the Lord. Look at what he's done for this tribe. He's kept his word this whole time. It became less of something that you would move through factually, but more of a celebration the closer you got to Jerusalem. Seeing God's faithfulness brings excitement. When you see God deliver, when you see God do what he says he's going to do, when you see him rescue and save, it's so exciting. And that's how we ought to be as Christians. When the Lord's working in your life, you should celebrate it. When the Lord's doing something amazing, you should tell people. Because when we share those victories, when we share what God has done, how he has saved, how he has rescued, it inspires us to trust him more, to trust him further. This is why we sing the songs that we sing. This is why we have the songs that we sing. Because people in the past have decided it's not enough to just know this story. We've got to write it down. And then we've got to sing it so that way we remember it. This, the songs that we have are, in a sense, the physical manifestation of singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. That's really what, what, what it's getting at. And we ought to celebrate that. No matter how small your victory is, no matter how small whatever God has given you or delivered you from or helped you with, you should share it so we can celebrate. It's in those moments of celebration that God is glorified and his church glorifies him together. 
It's what we want to, to collectively do, to raise our voice and to say, God is faithful. And that helps us all hold on when we are looking to those moments where we're looking to see how God works in our lives. God will be faithful. It's in those circumstances where you've not made it out on the other side yet, where you've not yet had the deliverance, where you've not yet had the victory, where God hasn't yet shown you how he's working, that we're often stuck in. And it's in those moments, before we've had the victory, before we've had deliverance, that we have to press in to the Lord and pray. We have to ask him to work and to have his way. This is what the psalmist does. This is what they sing together in verse 4. Look at the prayer here. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The first thing we see prayed here is God to be faithful to his character. Do good to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, as we mentioned earlier, one of the the main components of God's covenant with his people upon deliverance from Egypt was this. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you listen, you will reap good things. Good people get good things, right? This is essentially what uh, the covenant, old covenant was. Now, there is a difference here because this is different than karma, right? Oftentimes we think of that, be a good person, get good things. Like, that's the kind of really like quick junk drawer karma definition. That's not the same of what's happening here. Being good in God's economy is obeying his laws and operating according to his rules and trusting in him alone as savior. And still, you're still operating on the component of faith that is operating in the manifestation of a works-based system. And so it's not just uh, this real loosey-goosey do good, but rather it's obey God. Obey God, and you receive blessings. Disobey God, and you receive discipline uh, in the form of these curses. And so here, this was connected to obedience. And his prayer in the midst of making their way is this. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. This isn't a really fancy prayer. All he's really asking here is, God, you made a promise. Be faithful to your promise. We're going to try to keep your law. We're going to do the things that you asked us to do. We are going to be upright in heart. We are going to walk in obedience. Honor your promise. We're going to do our part. You do your part. It's pretty straightforward. As we think about God honoring his promise, of course, he was faithful to do so. But the truth of the gospel is, is that he goes beyond that promise 
in the form of the new covenant. Because not only does God do good to those who are good and obey, as is prayed here, but in the new covenant, he does good to those who are not good and do not do good. It's a more radical promise, a more encompassing promise, a greater promise that he demonstrates his love to those who are opposed to him. In Romans chapter 5, we read that God did good for those who are not good. Romans 5 verse 6, For a while we were still weak. Right? It opens with that confession, like, we're weak. We've got nothing. We're broken. We're messed up. We are enemies and opposing God. For a while we were still weak at the right time. Right? That's the opportune time. You, you can't have earned it. You can't have contributed to it. You can't have asked for it. You're just, you got nothing. You got no part of it. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly, not for the good. Not for the good, for the ungodly. We get the greater explanation in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Like he starts at the highest person, like, for a righteous person, somebody who just is, seems like they're like so amazing, like they have, have obeyed the law, they've done all the things, like for that person, maybe occasionally someone would die for that person. And then he backs down like not even a righteous person, but someone who's just a general like good person. Someone might even be, be bold enough to die. That they might have have enough guts, they might be crazy enough to die for someone who's just kind of like good. Someone who even dare to die. Then we read in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. His promise to us is great. It's greater than the old covenant. He not only does good to the good, but he does good for the not good, for the ungodly, for the enemy. But those who turn aside, verse 5, to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Under the Old, Test uh, Old Covenant, there was the blessing for doing good. But curses for evildoers, for the wicked. Now, there are kind of two categories here that are being, it's, it's a little bit nuanced, but he says there are those who turn aside and then there are evildoers. So there are those who are on the path, they're trying to walk with God, they are, they are uh, looking like they are a part of the community, that they are a part of the family of God, they're looking like that, but then they see the evildoers off to the side, and they go, oh, 
let me go see what's happening over there. Let me just take a detour. The things that, the basics, the things that we know that we're supposed to be doing as Christians. It just takes a simple lapse in those things. And you start to drift. You start to move just to the, to the side a little bit. Just a little bit. A little move makes all the difference. There are the fundamentals, the basics of the faith that we are to perform every day. You have to read your Bible every day. Yes, I'm serious. We've talked about this a million times. You have to read your Bible every day. Every day. You have to pray every day. You have to come to church and be a part of the community of believers. Come to church. I speak of come to church as the encompassing idea is that you need to be here on Sunday morning in the fellowship of believers doing your part in the body of Christ. But also, coming to church encompasses the unity of the body of Christ as the church scatters throughout the week and there are little pockets of believers that meet up throughout the week, you need to make it a priority to be in fellowship, to have a connection, to have a phone call, to be connecting with somebody who's holding you accountable or who is praying for you or who is sharing what's going on in your life. Those things are so important. That's a part of coming to church, right? Attending a service and coming to church are different things. Anybody can start a service or have a service, but creating the community that is a church is different. We're not just having a Bible study. We're having a church where the members of the church do their jobs to serve one another. They use their gifts to give to one another, to meet the needs of one another. You have to do these very, very basic things. They have to be priorities because if you do not do them, you do not do them, you are going to drift. Think about these instructions that are being given here. These people are literally on the way to feasts to worship the Lord in Jerusalem where they had temple sacrifices going on, and there's a visual, like you know exactly what's going on, and there's a temptation to turn aside while you're on the journey with other people. It's not just like, well, you know, like my schedule got busy. Like they're trying to do the right things, and they're already like in trouble. They're, try they're like literally on the journey that they're supposed to be taking, and they've already lost. It's like, oh, you, you've got to stay that focused. You've got to, to, to plug in. You've got to confess your hardships, your difficulties to one another so that when somebody else sees you looking at the side of the road for too long, they can be like, hey, 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 let's go. We're not stopping to take pictures. Let's move. Because too often they'll be like, oh, let's pull over the car. Let's go over there. Let's go see what's out there. Uh, we're not really in a hurry. Like, let's just kind of like, 
can kind of slow down. We'll get there eventually. We tend to make these compromises. But a little deviation puts you in trouble. There are uh, several times where I've had the opportunity to do some sailing in the ocean and really, really great, great fun. Um, when I was, I think I was in seventh grade, I sailed uh, from from the coast in um, in Southern California, Orange County, out to to an island off the coast, Catalina, and just like me and one like at the time someone who seemed old but was not very old. Looking back now, I'm like, wow. <laughs> My parents let let it like a bunch of like little kids go out on like this ship with. <laughs> go traveling around on the, on the seas uh, with somebody. We went out to this island, and, and it's uh, 26.2 miles away, a marathon away from, uh, from land. It's not a, a long journey, but sailing, if you, you got to catch the right wind, it takes a little bit of time and trying to figure it out. But one of the things that I got to really experience and enjoy there, you know, I think I was probably like in sixth grade or something when I did this. Uh, that's why I was, I was saying it's a little bit crazy. <laughs> I was pretty young, but one of the things is I, I got to I got to steer steer the ship, and so as we were sailing, we were making our way. You know, each each kind of member of the crew had uh, a job. You know, either working the sails or the lines, or you know somebody you know looking at the wind. And so the person who's who's at at the rudder. You're holding this, this kind of long stick, and you're looking out into the horizon. You can see where you're headed, the destination, and you have uh, the little compass there, so you you know you can uh, know what direction you're headed in and all that. And so, I was like, "Yeah, this is all awesome." I got to got to drive it, I'm sitting there, and the winds the winds whipping up, and like the ocean spray, and it's like, "Yes, this is so awesome!" Like. You know, you just feel like this excitement and being younger and getting to have, like, drive such a powerful machine and making our way out there and receiving the instruction, like, okay, here's what you need to do to be a member of the crew, to, to make sure that you are heading in the right direction. We need to go in this way to get there by this time. And as I was sailing out there, uh, in the process of it, you know, you're kind of looking around, talking to people, and uh, the, the leader who was, who was sailing with us came over. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going, going, sailing to the island. I could see it's right there. He's like, yeah, but you're not sailing to the island. I'm like, yes, I am. It's right there. I see it. It's right ahead. Got it. Like, look, come sit where I'm sitting. There it is. You see it. I see it. I got the rudder. We're headed towards it. Boom, done. He's like, but look, you're like four degrees off. You're four degrees off on the, uh, on the compass. I'm like, Okay, like, when I get there, I'll just kind of, like, turn, turn a little bit. It's like, if you keep going off at four degrees, like, we're going to miss this thing by, like, 100 miles. Like, you're, you're going to go the wrong direction. You have to stay connected to the compass. You have to stay on bearing. It's that little tiny deviation that starts off small, but if you head in that direction for too long... All of a sudden, you're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles off course. You've overshot it. You've missed it. 
And so what you have to do is you then sit there and you look, you have your eye on the compass, you look at the horizon, you're holding the, you're holding the, the till, and you just keep your hand there, you watch where you're going, and then you just check the compass every so often. Looking down, we're on the right degree. Looking down, right degree. Yep, look up, look down, look up, look down. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have to come back to the basics. You have to press in because if you go off just a little bit, you're gone. You'll turn aside and be pulled in with the evildoers. And it's the Lord who is the discerner of hearts. Look at what he he says here. Those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away. It's not like he's going to go over them and be like, oh, I can't believe you guys were over here. How did you guys get over here? That's not what happens. He sees the divided heart and he's like, all right, guess guess you're with them. That's, you don't trust in me. You're with that group. You are being led away with evildoers. You think you're on the right path. You think you're moving in the right direction, but you really starts with just those couple degrees off. Starts with moving in just the, just slightly to the side. Seems harmless. But I will remind you again, we are at war. <laughs> We're not playing. This is war. We're here to fight. This is a battle. This isn't training. This is war. And so you have to g- come ready every day. You have to come ready. Read your Bible, pray, get in fellowship, come to church. Don't attend a service, come to church. Be a part of the church. You're a member of the church. Contribute to the church. Your gift of your presence, your gift of speaking into the lives of others. You're here to give something to somebody else who's here this morning. I'm here to give to you. You're here to give to each other. You're here to give to me. We're all here to give to each other. We're not walking through the door saying like, well, I'm going to receive something today. You probably will because everyone's supposed to be doing their job. But you're not looking for you. You're looking for what do I need to do here? I'm on a mission to provoke others to, to righteousness. I'm here to sharpen others. I'm here to make sure that we all go out together, we all come in together, that we're ready to fight together. In the New Testament, we find the description in 1 Timothy chapter 1 of those who seemed like they were on the right path, who were doing the right thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul writes of these men, he says that Timothy, he's been holding faith and, and, and having a good conscience, but he says that there are those who were continuing with them, and they've rejected these things. He says that they've made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, right? And then here's what Paul says. Here's what I did with them, since they were like turning aside and starting to move with the evildoers. He says, whom I handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. He's like, just had to put the, put the foot down and be like, all right, 
I can't let the scepter of wickedness lay across the church here. So I had to tell these guys, like, you're out. Go out there. Satan's going to deal with you. And by that, he doesn't mean, like, you're, like, forever gone. But he means, like, if you're really going to press into your sin, like, go there. You're going to realize you're miserable, and you can repent. And when you want to repent, if you want to get right, I, we don't know if these guys did, but delivering them over so that they might be not coddled and under the impression that they are like, oh yeah, you guys are a part of the church, even though you like are rejecting these things. It's like, look, if you're out, you're out. And then get out so that way you can see the error of your ways. Looking for repentance and reconciliation. But he's like, we got to deal with this. We can't let the scepter of righteousness here lay across the land because it's going to infect everybody else. But God ultimately is going to deal with those who turn aside, who are going crooked. He will lead them away with the evildoers. And then we read this, peace be upon Israel. So we find the, the, the summary here, the statement, peace be upon Israel, is really the result of what happens when you trust Trust in the Lord when you're like Mount Zion and also when the Lord surrounds his people. This is what brings peace. To experience this peace, you have to be in relationship with God, to trust in him. Jerusalem is a place that has always longed for peace. A contentious city, one that has um, always been in some sort of trouble. And at the time of Jesus was under occupation by Rome. And like the many pilgrims who have gone before, Jesus also made this journey several times. Jesus also made his way. And as he moved to the city, as he made his way there from the surrounding regions throughout his life, and no doubt on his very last journey, as he made his way to Jerusalem, which this is what, where we get the, the, the root word of Jerusalem, salam, is rooted in the word shalom, which is the word peace, the city of peace. It's no doubt that Jesus had in his mind the many who were singing this psalm along the way in prior years, in prior times, in prior centuries. And as he made his way, that last journey, particularly into the city, we find him on Palm Sunday making the triumphal entry. And the people crying out for peace and the people asking for rescue. And Jesus making his way down the valley, 
across the brook there at the bottom and ascending onto the Temple Mount, no doubt he looks and sees Mount Zion. He sees the surrounding mountains and knows that in his actions that week that Israel will find its peace. That the truth of this psalm will come to pass in his faithfulness, in his work. It's precisely because Jesus was faithful that week, because Jesus went up onto the Temple Mount and trusted in the Lord, that he demonstrated that God would be faithful to keep his covenant, to keep his promise, that he would be faithful to raise Christ from the dead for our justification. It was in that work that we then find ourselves surrounded, surrounded by the Lord, covered by the blood of the Lamb, because Jesus was faithful. You see, when we trust in the Lord, and when, when we look to Him, we become like Mount Zion, because we are constantly looking to that mount on which He was crucified, on which He was, he was uh, destroyed for our sakes. We are reorienting ourselves. We are setting our bearings so that we are on target. This is why we trust in the Lord. This is why we look at him continually, why we set our gaze upon the cross. Because it puts us on track. It orients our inner compass to make sure that we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, that we are finding our identity, our value, our hope in Christ alone. It's when we place our trust in Christ when we look and realize that he is the one who is surrounding us, that we really, truly find peace because he is the prince of peace. And his rule and reign will never end. And so, of course, we can, as the psalm tells us, abide forever as he surrounds us from this time forth and forevermore. Safe, secure, confident in the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your work and that you have accomplished such a task on our behalf, Lord, that you would be willing to die, Lord, not for the righteous or for the good, but for those who are ungodly weak, who are broken. And Lord, we ask that you would remind us of that faithful work. Lord, we want to continually move our gaze to you, to make sure that we are on course. We don't want to turn aside.
Lord, we want to continue walking with you. And so, Lord, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Change us, transform us as we submit to you and call us now to worship. We love you. Amen.